Good morning and welcome to Will of the People. Where indifference dies and clarity and consciousness are more than some pundit punchline memorialized in social media. We intend to provide a factual approach rather than the opinion-based regime media slants that they want you to believe and the real and clear present dangers that defiles the Constitution and our rights that are being stripped away right before our eyes. Folks, we've got a great show for you today, and we're going to be spending an hour um, with Dr. Peter McCullough, who has you know, come to national fame and international fame during uh, the, the COVID-19 uh, experiment over the last several years. And Dr. McCullough will be joining us here in just a second. But what I just want to, I know we've talked a lot about COVID and it's something that is coming back into the news again. Uh, we've seen some reports recently that there's been an uptick and that there's going to be possibly a, a triple a triple header this year as far as flu RSV and COVID that the uh, CDC will be asking you to take, especially those over 60. Or 60. So for folks here in the Grand Strand area um, that are retired, pay attention to what your health care physicians uh, are recommending and make sure that you know you, you check and do your, your research as we ask you to do. Uh, joining me now on the line is Dr. Peter McCullough. Dr. McCullough, good morning to you. It's great to be here. Thank you. Uh, so let's, Peter, we've got a, a bunch of stuff to go through with you. But, you know, the headlines right now, I just mentioned that um, the media machine seems to be gearing up as as of late with a new wave of COVID cases and a need to be pushing a mandatory COVID shot again in conjunction with the flu shot and RSV. And that this late summer wave, we've seen Dr. Hotze come out and say that the Barbie movie and some of these things where people are now packed in again, it's going to lead to some type of you know, upheaval and we're going to see cases start to climb. Um, what's your opinion about that? Because uh, I've had folks ask, is, is, are they serious? Is, is this real? And I said, well, let's get Dr. McCullough in line and ask him directly. Hospitals have been empty for two years now. A paper by Claussen and colleagues from Harvard show that 97% of us have already had COVID. So if there's a second case, uh, it is characteristically mild. You can't tell the difference between COVID and a, and, a, and a head cold. There was a paper from the U.S. prison system by Chin and colleagues, New England Journal of Medicine, October of 2022. Once somebody's already been through the Delta and Omicron phases, um, epics, if they get COVID again, another variant of Omicron, there's a 0% chance of hospitalization and death. So Americans can rest assured that they're fine. Uh, they can follow McCullough protocol, which is a great way to handle COVID uh, with over-the-counter solutions. And it starts with uh, nasal virucidal washes and sprays. So there's now some very, very good nasal sprays uh, and gargles that work to basically kill the virus on contact. It works for a common cold, works for a flu. It's far better than a vaccine. And uh, this is wonderful. They, most of them contain povidone iodine or xylitol or both. So you should look for those. Um, you can go to my website, petermccullummd.com. It'll describe the McCullough protocol. But it's been widely used across the world now for, gosh, you know, uh, ever since August of 2020. So coming up on uh, three years. Right. Yeah. And that's one of the things, too, I wanted to bring up during the course of our conversation that you did come up with this spray protocol for early COVID. My family used it. Um, it, it worked. And uh, you, you, you saved tens 
of thousands of lives um, by bringing that to the forefront, despite uh, the regime media and the CDC and everybody else within the pharmaceutical uh, cabal trying to, to squash this immediately and say, no, 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 don't go down, down that path. Uh, f- follow exactly what, what we want you to do. Doctor, one of the things that has is starting to really come to the forefront, and we saw with athletes originally, and we saw soccer players dropping, we're seeing a number of our younger athletes, especially those involved in strenuous sports, track and field, soccer, basketball, where there's a lot of stop and go and a lot of uh, acceleration uh, to your body. We're seeing a number of these folks come down with ailments that – the press and the medical community, they don't want to go to COVID-19 or they don't want to go to the shot and tie any correlation together. Do you think there is a correlation when you're seeing these younger people um, that most likely have been vaccinated because mandatory vaccination for schools, for universities? Um, is there a correlation that we're seeing younger folks develop these types of heart and blood clot issues? Yes, there is. You know, as a doctor, I see these patients every day in my clinical practice. The very first question I ask them is, did they take a COVID vaccine? Which one? And when did they take it? I have to take a detailed vaccine history. Remember, the vaccines, the FDA has a warning. The vaccines cause heart damage that can precipitate cardiac arrest. Vaccines cause blood clots. They cause these problems. The FDA clearly tells us they do. So we must take a vaccine history. Everyone should disclose whether or not they've taken a vaccine as soon as they have one of these problems. Then we also take a COVID history. So COVID on top of the vaccine, since the vaccines don't work, getting COVID on top of taking a vaccine can amplify or trigger these events. But the vaccine is is pivotal. There's an autopsy study now by Holscher and colleagues, I'm a senior author on it, that has Uh, clearly reviewed every autopsy ever done and published in the peer-reviewed literature as case reports, 73.9% of these deaths that occur in people who have taken the shot are directly due to the vaccine. That's unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. We've had friends, family friends, that they have lost family members um, under the age of 21. And you know the autopsies have shown that it was a heart attack with no family history at all of heart attack, um, but uh, a you know verification with regards to not only um, the shots but boosters as well. So it, it's it's hit home with us uh, all too close. You know, it, you talk about blood clots, and and I've seen a number of articles, doctor, where we've seen morticians. Um, and, and people that perform autopsies come out and actually put it online. They're, they're seeing things that they've never seen in corpses before with regards to these very elongated, odd blood clots. You know, what is, if you could kind of walk us through, you know, what are the various stages of where a blood clot could possibly happen from the vaccine, why, and what it could ultimately lead to? That would be super helpful for our audience. The vaccines are the genetic code for the lethal Wuhan spike protein. The spike protein is the spine on the surface of the virus. The virus is a ball and it has a bunch of sticks sticking out of it. The stick is the spike protein that was engineered in the Wuhan Institute of Virology in China. 
Uh, it was uh, the design of it was by Ralph Barrick at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and uh, Barrick published in 2015 uh, two papers uh, saying that he collaborated with the Chinese. They've created this spike protein, uh, and this virus now can jump from person to person. It's poised for human. Uh, transmission. It was all by design, well published ahead of time, 2015. Can I stop you right there for a second, doctor? So so this brings up an interesting point. You're you're 2015. It may be the first time that a lot of the listeners are saying, well, wait a minute, I never heard of anything like this. And this is the first time that I'm actually hearing that date. Why did various federal government agencies hold back info knowing that the virus was created in 2015 can you comment on that? Because most people don't realize that. And also, as a follow-up, um, maybe we don't get to it in this segment, but in 2019, there were a number of people and conferences held where they were talking about an upcoming pandemic. And I've seen, I've seen those videos in the fall of October 2019 talking exactly about that. So if, if who were the federal governments that were aware that this was going on all the way back in 2015? Uh, you know, the, um, the uh, director of national intelligence, Averill Haynes, has been ordered to declassify all the U.S. documents on the lab and all the responsible agencies. Now, most of the agencies have on their website statements about the lab right now, including the National Security Administration, Department of Energy, the National Institutes of Health, the National Institute of Allergy and Immunology branch. And this has all come up in this in the uh, House Select Oversight Committee hearings. So it's all come out that this was a U.S. project. The two key papers, uh, the first author is Menacheri, senior author is Barrick. Uh, first is in Nature Medicine, and the second one is in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. This is from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. But it includes authors from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, including the bat lady, Dr. Zhengling Shi. And in that, those papers, they thank the Chinese for doing the work, that is U.S. work. In the papers, they state it's gain-of-function research funded by the National Institutes of Health. And because... The research started years before the ban on gain-of-function research. It was allowed to continue by the National Allergy Immunology Branch, which, which was directed by Anthony Fauci back in 2015. This is all clearly outlined in these published papers. And when the uh, crisis started, Fauci and his boss Collins at the NIH convened a teleconference with all the key <sighs> virologists in the world, including uh, Christian Anderson at Scripps, Dr. Rambot at, uh, uh, at uh, LSU, and uh, Dr. Edwin Holmes in Sydney. Unbelievable. Peter Daszak at the EcoHealth Alliance. He was the NGO that actually shuttled the plants from Barrick to the Chinese, as well as um, Jeremy Farrar, who was at the Wellcome Trust, who's now the senior scientists at WHO, Doctor, they, all could, agree, they all agreed on these meetings, these meetings to intentionally deceive the public and the world with a false narrative that the virus came out of nature. We've got to take a break right now, Doctor. Um, stay with us. We'll, we'll be right back with Dr. Peter McCullough. We're talking about all things COVID, and we'll be right back with Will of the People.
back to Will of the People. Joining us is Peter McCullough, internationally renowned cardiologist and one of the, the uh, leading voices uh, on COVID-19, on the effects of the vaccine. And, and also, Dr. McCullough, you know, you have been the tip of the spear, too, talking about the widespread corruption across the spectrum from government healthcare providers, the biopharmaceutical complex, you know, who were the players in this and how were they all coordinated and how have they worked in unison? If you could shed some light on that, because I think our listeners will find that very interesting, that how all these entities are all tied together. We put this in our book, Courage to Face COVID-19. So if you go to couragetofacecovid.com, you can take a look at the, the book. But it's clear a biopharmaceutical complex has formed. They've been meeting in Davos every year at the World Economic Forum meeting. So it takes quite many years of coordination. And this complex or syndicate at the top, we believe, is the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization, United Nations, the Wellcome Trust, Rockefeller Foundation, Gates Foundation, the vaccine center that Gates and WEF formed, which is called CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, a Unitaid, uh, a Gavi, and then they've linked up the regulatory agencies. That was key, the uh, CDC, the NIH, the FDA, Health and Human Services. In the UK, it's MHRA. Australia, it's TGA. Uh, Europe, it's EMA. South Africa, it's SAFRA. And they've been working on this for years. When you say years, and, Dr. McCullough, you know, I, I take it back. There's a little-known thing called the Good Club, that took place in May 2009, where all of these billionaires came together, and several of the people there, there I know, uh, one in particular I, I used to have a business relationship with, and that person came out shocked um, because he said a lot of this had this either direct or undertone of depopulation. And I'm just curious, it does it go back that far or even farther? It clearly goes back to 2012. You you, pick, you picked a point in time where it's earlier. Um, I guess you could put the first um, marker in uh, what was going on is, is back in 2006 with the PREP Act. So Congress and HHS wrote the PREP Act in 2006, and they said, listen, there will be pandemics. There will be biologic threats. And when they happen, the government's going to take control in a very authoritarian way with what's called countermeasures. So if a virus or a fungal spore, something invades the United States, the government will have uh, you know, unprecedented powers to lock people down and force them to take vaccines and do all kinds of things. That was written into the PREP Act. And the PREP Act specifically says, listen, if there's any bad outcome that comes from this, there's liability to government agencies, anybody who makes a countermeasure. That's the reason why the term biological threat and countermeasure is so important. COVID's not a public health crisis. It's actually considered a national security operation, and the vaccines are considered countermeasures. Uh, another book to quote is by Peter Bregan, uh, COVID-19 and the Global Predators. The best thing about that book is go to the timeline in the back. Uh, he goes back to 2012 and says, 2012 forward, there were 36 pandemic preparedness planning events. Mm -hmm. 25 of them were have written documents. You can just review the documents. Who, who was there? What did they meet about? What were they planning? And then uh, six of them are filmed. You can actually review them. So uh, the most highly cited filmed event was Event 201. That, that includes U.S. senators, 
Our current director of national intelligence uh, was there, April Haynes, the, the director of the Chinese CDC. In fact, Haynes and George Gao, the director of the Chinese CDC, their scenario was, what if the virus comes out of the Chinese lab? How are they going to deceive uh, the world on the source of the virus? They practice this ahead of time. Oh, and this is something so, that we're going to get to during the course of our hour, Dr. McCullough, as far as you know, who, who was responsible and, and what is being said now by Fauci's boss that pinpoints that exact uh, situation that it occurred. So please continue, because this is fascinating for us to, to see how the coordination took place. And you also mentioned something about national security with COVID. What was the DOD's role in this? The DOD had a heavy role because emergency use authorization is a DOD mechanism for vaccines. They had used that before for the anthrax vaccine, which was a disaster for the military to take that. And uh, they needed the DOD and that emergency use authorization mechanism in order to bring the vaccines to, you know, clinical use on the public. And so as the vaccines were rolled out, they were rolled out by Health and Human Services and Department of Defense. Pfizer and Moderna and Janssen and Novavax, they're just suppliers. They're not running the program. Right. The program is being run by government agencies. If, if people have noticed, uh, none of these are fully licensed by the FDA. You can't buy a COVID-19 vaccine. It's a government program that's just being distributed through CVS, Walgreens, and other vaccine centers. Everybody else was just a player in the supply chain. It, 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 it was orchestrated and implemented uh, by the DOD. DOD had played a real prominent role with HHS. It's on all the uh, documents. And it's true worldwide. You know, worldwide, you can't buy a vaccine if you wanted one. They're only government um, uh, offered all over the world. And you know, we're two and a half years into this. Since when you, you can't buy a product? In America, you can buy every medicinal product you want to. My, my clinic could buy a flu shot if we wanted to or buy a pneumonia shot. You can't buy a COVID vaccine. That's it's amazing. only a government-offered, government-controlled biologic product. That is absolutely amazing. So can you take us forward from 2012 to present day? What Some of the steps and some of the organizations, because, again, I've heard you talk in the past about the corruption across the spectrum from government, from healthcare providers, uh, from the biopharmaceutical complex. Um, and and the, the the ripple effect that that's had, and and we'll get that's one of the questions we'll get to as far as you know it's it's part of the decimation of our military to some extent as well. But who going forward into the timeline to real day, who who are the players still involved in this, and you know what what are what is the mechanism that they can trade jobs back and forth across these organizations, move up the ranks. And all of a sudden, they find themselves in, in a position, whether on the government side or in the pharmaceutical, that it's an extremely lucrative uh, endeavor for them individually. One of the key aspects to the biopharmaceutical complex is its enormous wealth. There's probably been no single grouping of, of centers ever that has this degree of wealth. And many of them are not-for-profit, non-governmental organizations. So they participate in insider trading. So, for instance, the Gates Foundation put millions into BioNTech, the German vaccine company, and they got billions of dollars out. I mean, right. unprecedented profits. 
the contracts for the vaccines were all prearranged, pre-purchased. They weren't dependent on the quality and performance of the vaccines. These were all uh, done ahead of time. And so to this day, there still aren't competitive uh, products. So uh, as countries purchase these vaccines, uh, and they're purchased directly from the Department of Treasury, even if they don't work or they're not used, the money goes to the, the companies. So these suppliers have made you know hundreds of billions of dollars. It's been unprecedented revenue. And you're right, you see players move around within the complex. I mentioned Jeremy Farrar. He's at the Wellcome Trust. He's part of the complex. Well, he is part of the cover-up plan for the origins of SARS-CoV-2 from the lab. He gets rewarded by that by now becoming senior scientist at the WHO. Right. You have um, the former FDA commissioner, Scott Gottlieb. He works on the board of Pfizer. He was going on CNBC every morning promoting Pfizer vaccines. And then he was caught trying to uh, influence Twitter and content moderate, uh, dumbing down messaging on natural immunity. You have the FDA commissioner after him, Stephen Hahn. He uh, worked to block hydroxychloroquine, put a state we shouldn't use it uh, against ivermectin. He completely bungled uh, convalescent plasma, all the monoclonal antibodies. Basically, he undermined every treatment for COVID-19. He's rewarded by getting a job at flagship, uh, the venture capital firm for Moderna. So all of these people are inside this complex. Probably the most extraordinary is Stefan Benzel. He was a pharmaceutical rep in Belgium and then became a supervisor in Belgium. His next job was CEO of BioMerU in 2007. BioMerU gets the contract to build the annex at the, the um, biosecurity lab in Wuhan, China. So Bainzel and his company helped the Chinese build the lab, the annex, and train the Chinese. And then Bainzel jumps from BioMerU, which is a huge company. He becomes a billionaire during that time. And then a huge company. He joins a one-person company in, in, in Cambridge, Moderna. Unbelievable. Why would a CEO from a huge conglomerate, a billionaire, join a one-person company in, in Cambridge and Moderna? And then Moderna starts racking up COVID-19 vaccine patents with his name on it, you, you know, in the years leading up to 2019. I know. It defies logic. Doctor, we're going to have to hold it right there. Stay with us, folks. We have Dr. Peter McCullough with us on Will of the People. We will be right back after these quick messages. Continuing our conversation with Dr. Peter McCullough, a world-renowned cardiologist and COVID vaccine warrior with regards to getting the right information out to people. Dr. McCullough, welcome back. Quick question for you. I just ended the, the last segment, but is there a place that will show a visual? Because I, I taught at 
several universities for over a decade, and and one of the things I, I saw with students, some of them were very visual. Is there something online that you can point people to that shows them this web and maze of who's all interconnected and how? Because I'm sure that when someone takes a look at a clear picture of this, their jaw's going to drop. Yeah, that's a good question. They do exist out there on social media. Uh, John Leake, who's my writing partner for Substack, has done a four-part series on the origins of SARS-CoV-2. That's probably a good place to start. So if you go to petermccullohmd.substack.com, uh, you can find it. We, uh, we post every day. It's, it's probably the leading Substack on this entire topic. Uh, but so many people were involved on this and it explains uh, the widespread acceptance of the vaccines. You know, people took these vaccines uh, with no assurances that they were safe or that they were going to work. They were the first genetic shots that most people ever took. We don't have, you know, mass genetic products being taken. And then uh, before Americans knew it, they were told they need to take a shot every six months. You say genetic so now shot. Now, if someone's following the program, and I assume, you know, our two presidents, Trump and, and um, Biden, strongly promoted vaccines. They each should be on seven shots right now. They haven't come out and said it. Right. But they, they should be on seven shots if they believe in the vaccine. Exactly. You say genetic shot, and, and we've heard the terminology used, gene therapy. Could you just explain that to our audience as far as what the difference between a vaccine, a polio vaccine, and gene therapy, which was the underlying premise for this this shot, not a vaccination? Sure. So typical vaccines are either just a protein, like the tetanus shot or hepatitis B shot, a live uh, attenuated virus, like uh, the shingles shot, or a killed virus, like some forms of the flu shot. And um, those are the three types of vaccines. So in covid there's only one vaccine that's just like a tetanus shot, and that's Novavax. So Novavax, the government never talks about that, but that's still available. Uh, it's like a, it's like a tetanus shot. It's it's probably you know completely outdated. It probably doesn't work at all. Uh, but in my view, it's, it's probably much safer than a genetic vaccine. The genetic vaccines are Pfizer, Moderna, and then Janssen, which is off the market. So we're just left with Pfizer, Moderna. But they install the messenger RNA code. The messenger RNA looks like it's indestructible. The human body can't break it down. So it produces an endless supply of the spike protein, continues to circulate in the body. Uh, athletes tend to load the heart with it because they work out so much. The heart gets loaded with spike protein. It causes heart inflammation. The spike protein is found in blood clots. That was one of your questions. It yes. causes blood clotting. Uh, the, the spike protein folds and becomes an amyloid protein, which is a rubbery protein. That's the reason why the blood clots are so rubbery. It goes into the brain and causes brain damage, stroke, hemorrhages, into the walls of blood vessels that precipitates heart attacks. It uh, causes immune system problems called autoimmunity. People get joint aches, skin rash, their hair falls out. About 15% of people who took a vaccine now have some chronic illness due to taking the vaccine. I think one of the most chilling papers I've seen is by Lee and colleagues, L.I., and colleagues, huge study, 750,000 people who took two shots in 2021 versus 1.5 million people who did not. And they found little micro blood clots going through the retinal arteries and retinal veins of people who took the shots. 
uh, implying that once people take a shot, they are prone to form blood clots even two years later. Yeah. Well, with doctor, it's you brought up about the spike protein, and I've recently been going to a functional medicine provider, uh, Dr. J.P. Salibi down here in the, the Charleston and, and Myrtle Beach area, and uh, I found out that my spike protein was uh, at over 9,600, and I took the mm. J&J shot, the Janssen shot, mm. and you mentioned about the mRNA. You know, a lot of people who took the J&J shot were thinking that they were not taking an mRNA shot, and now that this has been very quietly just taken off the market, it seems to have you know, faded away without any fanfare. What happened uh, with that, and why did this Janssen shot, literally in May, I believe, just seem to disappear, and that was it, and is never talked about again? The adenoviral DNA vaccines, which were uh, Janssen and then AstraZeneca, by the way, they're made by the same biodefense contractor, Emergent Biosolutions, outside Baltimore. They're not made by the companies. None of the vaccines, by the way, are made by the pharmaceutical companies. They're made by biological defense contractors. But Emergent Biosolutions made it, and it was using a, a adenoviral vector that was downloading the, the payload of the DNA that codes for the spike protein. And the gamble there is we just didn't know what was going to shut off this DNA inside the cell. Right. And it turned out that the adenoviral vector itself promoted blood clots that was shown in other vaccines. And then, of course, the spike protein is super blood clot forming. So Janssen even had blood clot problems even during the clinical trial program. The FDA quickly put a warning on it that it caused blood clots in the brains of women and young girls called central venous thrombosis. Uh, AstraZeneca never even could make it through the regulatory process in the United States. They, they dropped all their efforts. Uh, in the fall of 2021, I believe. And uh, then Janssen was quietly taken off the market. But the United States CDC and FDA strongly promoted Pfizer and Moderna because their messenger RNA. United States government co-owns the patent for the Moderna vaccine. And the CDC invited in and paid the marketing firm for Pfizer and Moderna, Weber Shandwick, to have a marketing unit inside the CDC. So Michelle Lewinsky paid them over $50 million. Uh, Senator Rand Paul called this out as a complete violation of conflict of interest. So the CDC is in bed with Pfizer Moderna formally uh, through Weber Shandwick, and they've been illegally promoting those two vaccines over the other one. And, and aren't there physicians within the, the NIH and CDC complex that their names are actually on the patents? Uh, not, not not just these drugs in particular, but you know across a broader spectrum where they receive royalties from that. They are. Uh, so scientists at the uh, National Institutes of Health and other research agencies are allowed to be inventors on patents and receive royalties. That's just part of the, the rules. But Is that a have, conflict, doctor? It, well, it, sure, it's a conflict because if one uh, has invented something, obviously they're, they're strongly intellectually uh, biased by you know their efforts. They want to show that their efforts are valuable. But on top of that, once money is involved... And particularly the government employees are not at high salary levels. The, the royalty amount could be really significant. Uh, that may be such an inducement that the, the, the government, uh, people inside the government start to make decisions that are not in the best, you know, the best interest of American people. We should never have the U.S. government have a financial profit motive to push a certain pharmaceutical on the public. 
know, whenever there's a money trail and follow the money, it seems like that conflict of interest uh, continue. It grows its ugly head as as you move further down the path. And I'm sure that a lot of people within that complex see that as you know an avenue towards you know building wealth for themselves as opposed to being in the outside practice world like yourself and saying you know this is a uh, and a protected entity that they operate within that whole government. Uh, enclave, which makes it very interesting, um, the real motives behind what drugs and what type of treatments are pushed, as opposed to what you've been out there uh, telling the, the general public that they need to pay attention to, especially with what you can do to get rid of the spike protein. We've got about a minute left and I wanted to, to say, could you quickly just go through? There's a protocol that's out there for the for the to deaden the spike protein and, and wash it from your system. I'm on it right now. Could you quickly just run through that for the audience? Sure. So the human body cannot digest the spike protein. As the vaccines continue to produce more and more of it, the body gets progressively loaded. So we need some help. Uh, there are now supplements that are enzymes that have been proven to dissolve the spike protein. The first one's natokinase, natokinase, available as a Japanese product, mm-hmm. 2,000 units twice a day. The next one is bromelain, derived from pineapple stems, 500 milligrams once a day. And then we block the effects of the spike protein fragments by curcumin, preferably liposomal curcumin, 500 milligrams twice a day. That's called base spike detox. Again, it's natokinase, bromelain, curcumin. You can buy these over the counter, multiple different sources. And uh, it takes about three months for people start to, to start to turn around, in my experience. Uh, we have a major paper coming out to support this. The peer-reviewed literature has been fully accepted now. And then doctors and patients can add other things. But this base spike detox, some people are going to be on it for months, if not years. Sure. Perfect. Well, doctor, uh, that wraps up this segment. You'll be joining us on the other side of the uh, or short commercial break. Folks, please stay with us. This is Will of the People, and we have a special guest with Dr. Peter McCullough. We'll be right back. I see this life like a swinging vine. Swing my heart across the line. In my face is flashing signs. Joining me for the last segment of this hour is Dr. Peter McCullough. Dr. McCullough, thank you for being so gracious with your time and sharing your wisdom and your experience. I want to close this segment out with a couple questions around, you know, your client, your 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 patient base, you know, what you're seeing, and. Do you believe that there's been a complete loss of trust in not only the governmental and medical authorities as a result of COVID-19, the pandemic, and what they've told the American population to do, um, and even among the vaccinated who followed blindly down the, the path that said, hey, you know, they're doubt, having those doubts. What, what did I really take? And as they're starting to see pieces of information come out, um, there's this a loss of trust. And, and is that loss of trust real? And what can we do to get truthful health care information uh, that we can be you know, at least somewhat comfortable with that we're getting the full story? 
Doc, Dr. McCullough, we're going to close out this segment uh, with asking the question around the loss of trust in, in government, medical authorities or as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic um, and what the American population can do to be self-educated. They're seeing news articles. They're seeing uh, people like Bronnie James you know, fall over from, uh, from a heart attack. He's quickly recovered. Um, but it's left this doubt in their mind that, wait, what did I take? Uh, and it, what is happening, as you described, with the blood clots? And people were aware two and three years ago that there would be a long time, a longer timeline for these things to come out, and they're finally coming. Uh, where can we go to get truthful health care information? I think people should uh, definitely visit their doctor. They need to ask some hard questions. Did their doctor take the vaccine? Do they still support it now, or do they have concerns over dangers? They have to see if their doctor is now awake to what's going on with these vaccines. That's step one. Step two, there's some wonderful organizations. One is the Association of American Physician Surgeons, AAPSonline.org. Very trustable source of information. They've had the very first treatment protocol. Another one is the Frontline Critical Care Alliance, FLCC.net. Uh, I would encourage patients to visit my website. I have links everywhere, PeterMcCulloughMD.com. And uh, people are going to need to find a way to navigate. One alternative they can always have in their back pocket is the wellness company. The wellness company is an uh, alternative healthcare system. It's available through a computer um, application. So you simply go online to TWC.health. Mm-hmm. You can become a member for less than $10 a month, get immediate access to doctors for second opinions, prescriptions, lab tests, x-rays, and get immediate treatment for problems. So a lot of people, additionally, in addition to their doctor, uh, sign up for the wellness company. The wellness company is interesting. I've read several articles about it. It's it, And there's a lot of talk within the healthcare community, and it's an interesting fact you brought up. Ask your doctor if they've taken the shot and if they have, if they've taken the boosters, because a number of the physicians that I've spoken with, um, they said that they did not take the shot, even though they, they the heavy hand of the health uh, care systems was on them. They found ways not to, to avoid that uh, and say, nope, I don't trust this. This is not the typical medical protocol for a vaccine, and they didn't do it. Um, I want to spend a little bit more time about the wellness company, how it came about, and is this the next step in alternative, an alternative choice for people to, you know, you hear traditional medicine. And I hear that among functional physicians now, that we're going back to traditional medicine, not the medicine that has been hijacked by the insurance companies and by the healthcare systems. Medicine's always been an art and a science. And in the last few years, the art of medicine has really been devalued by big pharma that came in and said, listen, unless we have big pharmaceutical-sponsored randomized trials, we can't treat a problem. That's basically what happened with COVID. They said, listen, you can't treat it unless we have big pharmaceutical trials. That was the uh, rebuttal when I testified in the U.S. Senate uh, November 19th, 2020. And that rebuttal was by by the current uh, coronavirus uh, task force coordinator, Dr. Ashish Jha. And I replied. I said, listen, (laughs) it takes five years to do large randomized trials. We still don't have any large definitive 
randomized trials in COVID-19. So we need clinical judgment, and we need uh, empiric treatment based on clinical rationale. That's what we're doing with the base spike detox, as an example, natokinase, bromelain, and curcumin. It has very supportive preclinical data. In the case of curcumin, there are randomized trials. But the point is, doctors practice an art, and so they are retrained. And there's all different types of doctors, naturopathic doctors, integrative doctors, holistic doctors, chiropractors, um, MDs, DOs, nurse practitioners, PAs. And so what patients are asking these healthcare providers to do is use their judgment right now. We, we faced an unknown with the virus. Right. Now we're facing a whole panoply of unknowns with the vaccine injury syndromes. Well, doctor, we've got about a minute 30 left with you. Uh, the last question I have, and I'm sure a number of people listening to this, it's on their mind as well. When will the day of reckoning come and who will go down? The Australian came out with a report about Fauci's boss, the lab leak downplaying the origins of the virus and his real involvement involving 65 projects at the Wuhan Virology Lab. Um, when do you think, we've got a minute left, when do you think this comes to the forefront and he's actually put in the seat and Justice, Lady Justice starts to put him on the scales? I think it's going to be years. It's certainly going to be after a presidential election. Senator Rand Paul has called for criminal uh, ch charges and investigation to occur on Anthony Fauci, uh, just like we're seeing widespread corruption with the Department of Justice and um, you know everything from the Biden family to the Trump, Trump and uh, his indictments. Uh, we don't seem to have fairness or the rule of law right now. Corruption is widespread. Uh, the only court that's really open is the court of public opinion. That's the reason why independent media like this is so important. So I'm grateful to have you, uh, you know, have me on the program and let us you know, have a free interchange. Well, that's what we want here at Will of the People. That's why we named the show that way, Doc, uh, Dr. McCullough. Listen, we have to wrap it up there. I hope you will come back in the future, uh, spend some time as far as updates on what we're seeing. And again, thank you so much for spending the hour with us. This is Bill Brennan. Will of the People will be right back. Lately, I've been, I've been losing sleep. Dreaming about the things that we could be. But baby, I've been, I've been praying hard. Said no more counting dollars, we'll be counting stars. Yeah, we'll be counting stars. Welcome back to Hour 2 of Will the People. I'm Billy Brennan, and on the line, we are joined by Carol Roth, a New York Times bestseller, and her recent new book, You Will Own Nothing, is an absolute must-read for this audience and anybody who is really keyed into what is going on right now in the world of financial markets and how the corporations and governments are working together. So, Carol, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, listen, I have heard you countless times on Glenn Beck. Uh, and in fact, we may have met to, uh, in San Francisco back 
in the late 90s. I was running research for Pacific Growth Equities uh, back in 98 and 99. Oh, and wow. I, I know you, there's a name that you probably recognize from your days at Montgomery. But uh, I'm a recovering hedge fund manager and mutual fund <laughs> manager as you're a recovering investment banker. So I, could, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on. Listen, I want to jump right into this. You know, the financial world order topic that you talk about, what inspired you to bring this to the forefront? So as somebody who has advocated for wealth creation opportunities for the masses for more than a quarter of a century now, there was just so many things that were coming up where people were saying, you know, I am doing feel like I'm doing the right things, I'm working hard, I'm, I'm saving, I'm trying to invest, and I just I can't get ahead. And these topics that, you know, from social credit to business social credit in the form of ESG to the debasement of the dollar – to Wall Street competing with individuals for single-family homes, to big tech trying to rent our lives back to us as a subscription, a service, let alone uh, digital dollars and central bank digital currencies. Um, these were all these kind of things that were barriers to wealth creation and, and part of this frustration of the masses. And I was trying to kind of come up with that through line and one day as i was walking it sort of hit me like a lightning bolt you will own nothing that meme from the the world economic forum um that was going around and and you know how prescient that was and how it sort of tied all these different things together so i thought it was really a good jumping off point and as my you know as i did my research i i really tried to take a lot of the conspiratorial elements out of things like New World Order and You Will Own Nothing, because there's actually a, a lot of meat there um, and uh, and a lot to talk about. Yeah, there certainly is. And all of these things, as I've said repeatedly to our audience, are interconnected. And they are creating, you know, it's a puzzle right now, but the uh, the global elites want a mosaic at the end of this that literally will control most, if not every, aspect of our life. Uh, one of the things, too, that you know, with respect to the U.S., how is that being executed right now with the current administration? And what are the next three dominoes to fall or telltale signs that you're looking for based on you know what you've outlined in the book, but what you see that could be coming in the immediate future? When I say immediate future, let's call it before the election happens in November 2024. <laughs> All right, so I'll start backwards and say if I knew That's the exact fine. timing of everything, I would be um, on a mega yacht in the Mediterranean not <laughs> having this conversation with you, Bill, right now. Um, so I, I wish I had that, that much clarity in terms of, of a crystal ball. I think in terms of the new world order, you know, this is something that the president himself has talked about. You can find it on the White House's website, a speech that he gave to the Business Roundtable back in 2022. And he talks about how the world order shifts every few generations and that there's going to be a new world order out there and we've got to lead it, which ostensibly means that him and the people in that room, the CEOs of the big companies, and probably not you and me and anybody who's listening here today. So I think that the continued spending um, by this administration, especially as the, the Federal Reserve is trying to put the brakes on inflation – um, certainly the Federal Reserve policy that predates this administration but has, you know, sort of whipsawed all over the place. 
And then, you know, one of the, the biggest catalysts towards uh, a new world order that we've seen in, in recent times from this administration is the ultimate weaponization of the U.S. dollar. Mm-hmm. When Russia invaded Ukraine, you know, the Biden administration, without the approval of Congress, said we are going to freeze Russia's access to its reserves. Right. And it's very hard to be the global reserve currency in the center of the financial universe if you decide that you could, um, you know, just re- uh, freeze access to reserve assets as at your will. So I think all of these actions, the debt levels, you know, the, the continued spending, the, the weaponization of the dollar, the instability of the dollar, all marches us closer to that precipice of a new financial world order. Um, does anything you know, completely break, <laughs> more so than it already has, right. um, before the 2024 election. You know, it's very hard to say. I think that, you know, certainly we could see a scenario where inflation kicks back up again, you know, based on the fact that the Biden administration has, has anti-fossil fuel policies and has done nothing to um, reinvigorate our, our energy security. So, you know, that could be a possible outcome. Or, you know, this, this crazy transition in terms of the, the Fed's policy um, could end up um, breaking the banking system further than it already has. Commercial real estate could be the next domino to drop. Um, or it could just take a while to work its way through the economy, and we could really see a, a slowdown. But I think that, you know, there's a, a good case to be made on either of those sides, um, neither of which give us that soft landing before the next uh, before the next election. Well, with the bank, uh, potential bank downgrades right now and the fact that they hold as much paper on the commercial real estate uh, as they do, that 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 jumps out as the next immediate uh, economic impact that could, could – we've seen it in Los Angeles. We've seen it in D.C. We've seen people like Brookfield literally walk away from their buildings already and put that back to the banks. And if this continues – um, this has a ripple effect, and then, you, as I said, you know the dominoes that will fall. You can see that literally right on the horizon, and it just doesn't seem, besides people like yourself, that that anyone's having that conversation. I want to bring that up specifically because you talk about in your book history and cycle patterns and themes and behaviors. Where, in your estimation, are we right now? Um, relative to you talked about the Dutch before and what has happened. And we've seen these increments where you've had 250 years of the leader globally, whether it was the UK, whether it was France, Spain, whomever, um, that stepped into that position. You know, are we on the decline right now? And is China as big a threat as a lot of people are saying that they are? Lots of really good questions there, and and I can clearly surmise that we are um, getting long in the tooth. And obviously from a, you know, does that mean next year, 12 years from now, or 50 years from now, it's very hard to say, because when we look back historically, a 50-year period seems very small, but when we're living in the middle of it, a 50-year period seems like a very long time. Um, But, you know, I think just looking at something like our debt-to-GDP levels, 120 to 125 um, percent you know, public debt, not including the intergovernmental debt, mm-hmm. to GDP, we know that everybody thinks that's unsustainable. The IMF has said that's unsustainable. The Treasury has said that's unsustainable. The CBO has said it's unsustainable. 
and we certainly have no movement that's looking like it's going to to change in the in the right direction. Um, so that just keeps marching us towards something breaking. We know that China is trying very hard to become a leader. Um, I don't know that if you're worried about the U.S. dollar, um, it, you know, that you would want to then go to a, a communist-backed currency. I think it's one of the reasons why they have been loading up on gold and trying to offer some, you know, credible physical gold settlements for their own uh, trade and, and whatnot. But I think that's one of the issues. You know, when when the U.S. was there, when the British um, financial empire crumbled and the U.S. has stepped into that pole position, you know, we don't have another bastion of freedom and opportunity and property rights and, and, and other freedoms um, waiting to step into our, our shoes here. Right. The, the, com- the countries that are... Um, trying to get to that position are bastions of of tyranny and and dictatorship. So that is a a big concern. Um, From a catalyst standpoint, we know that not every war brings about a new financial world order, but the last several major new financial world orders have been brought about by war. So that kind of um, gives you a potential catalyst, which mm-hmm. could put everything up in the air because That's... it depends on who becomes victorious and how um, things are you know, part and parcel coming out of something like that. I think that the most realistic um, choice, which you know, one of, one of several possible outcomes, is that you just instead of having one sole superpower, that you have these you know broken apart trading blocks. And, you know, that may not sound like that big of a a shift, but when you're used to being the center of the financial universe, which has benefited the U.S. government's expansion with very cheap access to capital, Mm -hmm. and that no longer exists, and that could have implications for us in terms of everything from a contraction of our economy to further inflation to just not having access to some of the products um, you know, that we, we have, whether they be components for, for finished goods or Carol, the actual finished goods themselves. Yes. If, if we can, just hold it right there because yes. I want to come back, talk about BRIC, social credit with you, ESG, and that was a great outline of all the various things that could happen. Folks, we will be back after these commercial messages with Will of the People and Carol Roth. Will the people, uh, I am joined by Carol Roth. Carol, welcome back. Hey, just following up from how we ended the last segment, um, uh, what's the likely success of the BRIC currency that's being proposed by China, Russia, India, Brazil, and whoever else wants to join in on that? So it's an excellent question. Um, you know, as we're having this discussion, we are about uh, maybe just about a week away from their conference when you know, there's been a lot of speculation on what that might look like. 
Um, so I think until we hear, you know, what it is that they're proposing, how they plan to, to execute it, and if they have a, a liquid market for it, is it something that is meant to be a reserve currency? Is it meant to be a trading currency? Um, you know, it's very hard to um, to figure that out. I do think that um, it kind of goes back with what I was saying in terms of the efforts to chip away at the U.S.'s dominance. If you go back to the, the title of the book, You Will Own Nothing, which mm -hmm. came from that prediction, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy from the World Economic Forum, which was their number one prediction for the world in, in 2030, the number two prediction was that the U.S. will no longer be the world's leading superpower and that a handful of countries will dominate, which, I guess, number one is so shocking that nobody ever really focuses on number two, but it really, again, sh sheds a light on we're trying to, to tear down this, this superpower uh, standpoint and stance of the U.S. government. So I think that, um, you know, I, there's certainly a movement to move away from the dollar in some way, shape, or form. And it doesn't mean that the dollar goes away, but just the, the idea that it's not as dominant could have all kinds of repercussions personally. And then for the country itself, you know, the idea that um, you know, we don't have control in terms of sanctions and taxes and regulations and these countries can get around it could actually lead to more desperation from uh, our own government. Right. And that could lead to a war that could become a, a new world order catalyst. Well, you've said that previously that you know, a, a war has always been the the, the precursor to that next that the void being filled post that war of who is now going to be the dominant economic force in the world, and we filled that void for the last you know, call it eighty years, almost. 80. Yeah, yep. and so. It's crazy to think that, you know, it, and being a former veteran, I, I take a look at what we're doing right now, and we're doing all the wrong things with regards to Ukraine in order to continually try to destabilize Russia and now sending F-16s in. It just, we keep upping the ante rather than getting people to sit down and say, okay, enough. And it's clear that this administration wants to go, you know, head first into a war, which I think personally will happen uh, to us sometime before the election because they believe that there has never been a war time president that has lost an election let me switch gears for you for a second you're you're calling into beautiful south carolina the grand strand region uh what's social credit and why should the people that live here pay attention to that phrase a lot of people may not know what social credit is but how does this play into this whole you own nothing so i'm going to start with china since they tend to have the um the most advanced social credit system. And so basically their system, which gives letter and number scores depending on the, the jurisdiction, based on your behaviors, um, you know, is really decided upon by those jurisdictions. So it could be a, a letter grade, a number grade, but if you do something that the powers that be deem to be a good thing, maybe it is visiting your parents or giving blood or maybe you say something nice about the CCP on social media, then you get a good score. If you say something that is bad, or maybe you cheat at video games or something else that, that <laughs> they don't like, which is, we laugh, but it's actually one oh, of the things on their social credit list, um, then you get a bad score. And that has all kinds of implications. Um, one of the stories I share in the book 
is about a man named Lao Juan who was on the blacklist and he couldn't travel. And uh, one day he was looking up at a billboard and he sees his picture and it's got his unique identifier number and his name and it says, this is an untrustworthy person. Mm. And, you know, kind of goes through society and you go, may go, well, you know, that's the CCP, that doesn't happen here in the United States. But if you think about the evolution of social credit, it starts with cancel culture. Right. Then it becomes sort of an informal social credit, and then it becomes this formalized state, you know, number ranking system. If you think about what happens with that, it goes after your social standing, right, which is your opportunities to create money. It goes after your job, which is your actual income. And in some cases, it goes after your, your assets. Now, we've already lived through this, and it's accelerated, but COVID's a really good example. That was the warm-up act. It, it was the warm-up act, but it was, it was informal. It wasn't a, a numbered system, but it was basically informal social credit. Mm-hmm. They went after your social standing. They said, you know, you couldn't go to Thanksgiving or to Christmas. Um, if you didn't get a vaccine, you couldn't go to a restaurant and participate in society, assuming that uh, the restaurant Be- was even open. Behave at that point or we'll, take, we'll start to take those things near and dear to your heart away from you. Exactly. And then and we know that it came for your jobs, you know, some of it directly um, by mandate and some in, in a coercive fashion. Mm-hmm. And then for many people who own small businesses in particular, it came after businesses. In Canada, if you were part of the trucker uh, convoy, the Freedom Convoy up there, they actually froze access to bank accounts. So we're seeing that level of going after your assets, your jobs, your social standing already in place. And then we're seeing it even outside of the sphere of COVID with things like um, these you know, Twitter files and, and information coming out of Facebook and Meta that the government, if you know, if you're saying something that doesn't go along with their narrative – they want to get not only your information off that platform, but they want to get you off of those platforms. Right. So this is a mechanism of control. If they control the access to all these ways that you can earn a living and then you can't participate in society, then, frankly, they own you. Well, I had said to someone the other day, I said, listen, if there is a central bank digital currency, you, based on your social score, could actually pay higher for something like toilet paper or a necessity mm-hmm. than someone else because either your Twitter or your LinkedIn didn't didn't comply with the woke or the ESG, and sorry, you got dinged, and for that, you're going to pay double when you go to Food Lion. And they looked at me and they said, oh, come on, that's never going to happen. And I said, really? I'm going to ask Carol Roth, could that happen? It absolutely could happen. It also could be that they make your money expire if you don't use it uh, in certain places, which, of course, are probably owned by their cronies or in a certain period of time. They can shut off access to it to, quote-unquote, control inflation or because you've said something you don't like or because you've had too many burgers and, you know, they're trying to – to slow the consumption of burgers because it's you know supposedly bad for the, the environment. I mean, there are all different kinds of, of levels of control. This is something that has been discussed openly before, and some people see it as a benefit. Um, I'm in the camp of seeing it as a non-benefit. I'm squarely in your camp, Carol. And the Fed. <laughs> squarely in your camp. Yeah. So I mean. It, it, 
what kind of a world you want to live in, but you were right in terms of our agency and our sovereignty and our, our ability um, you know, to have these freedoms and, and privacy. It, it's the ultimate, ultimate um, nail in that coffin. Carol, we've got two minutes left with you, and I'm going to ask you right now. I want you back on the show as a regular. Your book is phenomenal. I want everyone listening to please go out, get Carol's book. Her site's carolroth.com. Um, the last question that I have for you, people are now listening to this and saying, I have a bunch of cash. What should yeah. I transition my cash into before it gets transitioned into a digital currency? And what hard assets are out there, Carol, that you take a look at and say, absolutely, this is an asset class you must own? Well, as you know, coming from the financial world, I cannot give specific financial advice because it, it depends on your Understood. risk objectives and all those things. But, you know, I'm, I'm a person of diversification. I think we don't know when the catalyst is coming, which direction. So as many different form factors as you can control. Central banks around the world are loading up on gold and precious metals. Mm -hmm. uh, people who are wealthy are buying homes and buying productive land. Yes. You know, having a diversified portfolio in the market you know, also makes sense. So as many of those different things as you can have so that you have that exposure but also that diversification in things, and the, the more that you have the opportunity to tangibly control things, I think the better it is for you. Because the elite may want you to own nothing, but, Bill, I know that you and I want everyone to own everything. Absolutely, we do. We want people to flourish. We want people to share in the American dream. And the last last thing I want to say on, on that is that, uh, you know, it's we're in a very tricky time period, and people need to pay attention to this, not stick their hands heads in the sand and say, oh, it's somebody else's problem. It'll go away. Your book tells people, stand up, start at the local level, and get involved. And that's what we all have to do. We all have to fight the fight. And, Carol, I can't thank you enough. We're going to have you back on. Um, good luck with your with the book tour. I know that you're busy. And thank you so much for being so gracious with your time today. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a great discussion. And everyone, go own everything. Carol, we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Welcome back to Will the People. I'm joined in studio by David Owens of Owen Liquors. David, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me, Bill. No, it's great to great to have you on. And we like to do these local segments with local businesses and get the word out because people drive by and, I mean, you've got a 70-mile stretch in the Grand Strand of where you can shop. And I wanted to make sure that this has become more personalized with people, and they realize that there's folks like yourself that are doing things in the community for for people that are down on their luck, for bringing business and commerce into, uh, into the situation in other ways than just their primary business. And so it's important for our listeners to realize that. So th thanks again for coming on. Could you please just give us a little bit of history about yourself? Because you're a local, and I, get, I don't get a chance since I'm a, a transplant to meet many locals that grew up in, the, in, in Myrtle Beach. So you've seen a lot of changes over the last 
60 years since you were a kid. So um, if you could give a quick snapshot on, on you know, your family's history here and, and how you got in the business. Sure. I was born back in 1961. Uh, my family is originally from Myrtle Beach. My mother, she was actually from Charlotte. Um, and we got into the liquor business in 1974 in Myrtle Beach on 7th Avenue. And uh, it was a family-run business. And I enjoyed it. My brother enjoyed it. My mother and father enjoyed it. And so we worked together for about 25 years. And then I took over the operation and I've been running it for the last 20 years and it's been fun it's interesting uh, to meet these people you know that are in the community and watching the community grow and it has grown a lot in, in, in Myrtle Beach especially around Litchfield Pauley's Island area and Myrtle Beach also yeah it, it has grown a lot I started coming down here in 1985 and um, bought a place with my folks in Garden City back in 91 and, and I Pauley's Island was just you know it, nothing like it is today and the growth continues down there and you've been a real staple you kept went into Polly's island what year uh 2014 okay. we went to Polly's island and i refurbished a building it used to be gilligan's restaurant and we uh, took that apart and put it back together and built that liquor store there which is a pretty nice piece it was always one of my dreams to build a store like i did on with this one um it's very nice and shoppable uh beautiful place i can't say enough about it we've got a beautiful oak tree on our property we're two and a half acres it's awesome. You know, and I had to figure out how I was going to design this, and I started thinking about, well, what's my customer base? So I figured out that 58% of my customers were female. And so when I got in there and started putting the colors in and doing the bathrooms and the floors and the ceilings and everything, I said, you know, I've got to put these people, this this group, in, in first and think about it. So we did with the soft colors and acid wash floors, and it turned out really nice, and we get a lot of compliments on it, you know, because – the women really like it, and they're 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 the top shopper now. You know, the the man men don't go in there as much as they used to. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it's a beautiful store. I've been shopping there since uh, we moved down to Paulie's part time, 2017. But started going to the store after yep. the store after a transition from Gilligan's, and uh, uh, I know that anybody that I bring in there. They go, wow, I wish we had this at home. Pennsylvania, unfortunately, is controlled by the government, and it's, you know, the Liquor Control Board, and it, everything looks, you walk in, and it's stepping into a small supermarket uh, of maybe three or four aisles, and you go into Owens, and you've got a great selection, great wines. And that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, was you, you spend the time, and though a lot of those wines are literally handpicked by you. Yes, they are. I mean, I started back when I was 25, starting to get into wines and enjoying wines and then I started collecting wines and I actually got bought me a cellar and put it up there on the north end at the other store and started collecting them and I collected you know four or five hundred different wines and then I started aging them because I was going to go to these winemakers and talk to them about their wines and trying to figure out what are they doing with their wines how are they getting where they're at and are they ageable type wines and it was fun to talk to them and find out how they did it and the process of getting these wines to be able to be stable enough to age for so many years well, I just broke some out the other day. They're 31 years old, so that meant I bought them. I bought them when I was 31 years old. So they're 32 and 33 year old wines. I'm pulling out of the cellar now and opening them up and drinking them, and they are phenomenal. But those wines were made to hold like that. There's not a lot of wines that are meant to hold long periods of times like now, that. Now, are they mostly California wines that you're talking no, about? No, I have French wines too. You know, I have some Bechevilles, uh, Latours. Those are some wines that really, really hold up. But also the California wines will hold up too. You got to get certain ones though. They're not all stable enough to stay out for twenty years. You know, who it, it you've been to a lot of vineyards. You've you've yes. actually traveled through the bourbon, yes, the, the bourbon through, trail yeah, and been through Kentucky, and you've you've traveled out to, to Napa and, and yes. California. What what are some of the the best middle 
of the road wines that you've seen out there as far as the vineyards, as far as, you know, accessibility to people? Because I, I know you can go in there and spend thousands of dollars on a, a bottle of wine. Yes. Um, but who, who are the vineyards that really stand out that, you know, the quality product but quality for the price? You know, I went out and saw and actually met Robert Mandavi and saw some of his wines, and they were awesome. He had some great wines out there. He brought some of the, the innovations to the wine industry. But uh, Benzinger is mm-hmm. a great winery out there, a small group, family-operated, two brothers and a sister. Uh, they're great people to talk to, and they take me around the vineyards and show me their properties and, and how they do the grapes, you know, as far as cutting them, you know, because sometimes they'll cull the grapes to get better quality juice out of the vines. And then we get old Zinfandels out of there, too, you know, with vines that are over 50 years old, which is awesome because right. those, those wines really produce. They don't produce a lot of fruit, but they produce concentrated fruit. So it really brings out some of those real high-end Zinfandels. That's one of the things, folks, the trip through Napa and Sonoma, if you ever get the chance to go, uh, my wife and I went on our honeymoon and spent almost 10 days in Napa and Sonoma. And going to the vineyards, we were fortunate. We had a friend who... Um, bought all the wines for the state of Pennsylvania. And so you meet these families and realize their dedication, and it's generational. And they really, really care about what they do, and they do it so well uh, because their name's on the bottle in a lot of cases. That's right. That's and right. And they're farmers. They, they are, farm- are farmers. I was just going to bring that up. That's, that's what's so enjoyable about it. You know, they get up in the mornings just like everybody else does in the industry, and they go out and they farm their product. And it's really neat and to talk to them about it because a lot of them want to be sustainable. They don't want not what, 100% organic winery, but they're sustainable. So they can they keep, quit with the pesticides and use animals and different products to go out there and keep keep the weeds down in the vineyards so they can make a good quality wine. Yeah, so I come out of the water industry, and there was one vineyard in particular, the, uh, the doctor that invented the stent. His daughter took us through the vineyard, and they actually had a water recycling plant. Uh, on, on the vineyard grounds, which that's, this is going back 12 years ago. And I was shocked to see it, that they had thought that far ahead. And the sustainable piece of this, you know, I mean, people take a look at the word sustainability now, and it's being thrown all over. It's, it's become somewhat political. But sustainability with regards to farming and what it means to the wine industry, it's purity. Yes. And it really means, and, and, and you've seen it firsthand, I've seen it firsthand, that these people are doing it naturally. Yes, they are. I just got turned on to a new winery the other day from Argentina. It's called Zaccardi. They have one of the most fabulous Malbecs that I've had in quite some time. It's a great find. They've got some great Chardonnays. They've got some Shenons. They've, they just brought a lot to the table, and I'm, I'm going through their portfolio now. So that's going to be a new one. I hope people come in and, and try to try one of those wines. But Zaccardi is a great group out of, out of uh, Argentina, and Argentinian wines are fantastic, and they're very – they're moderately priced, you know. Some of them, some of them can get a little pricey, but for the most part, they're really good wines. So, it, it, it's funny you bring up South America because people, I watch them when they go into your store and other places and shop for wines. And some people will shop on price. Some people will go, you know, right to the Zinfandels or right to the cabs and say, "Oh, this is, you know, this is what I drink. That's it." Um, for people that are, you know, just starting to explore wines and really wanting to learn about it, what's the best way to go about it uh, as a consumer if they don't have the opportunity for you know, to go to Napa and a tasting? What, what would you suggest? Come in and talk to my staff. I've got a great staff. Yeah. These guys are awesome. They know a lot about it because I keep teaching them. Every, every day I'll talk to them about different wines, how they're produced and made. And they're very knowledgeable. You know, I always tell them, you know, get the wine spectator. You know, just get yep. the magazine, pick it up, read it. It's got beautiful pictures in there of the vineyards. It's awesome. 
Um, I, I think you would really get a lot out of it by reading it, and, and it makes you question some things. So you might want to come into the store and talk to them, and I make it real easy for you because you don't have to have somebody around you the whole time. I've got tasting notes on every bottle of wine right up underneath the bottle, so you can sit there and read a little blurb about that wine, and you'll know about it before you even pick it up and buy it, whether it's you know, got raspberry, blueberry, or if it's Pinot Noir, you know, whatever it might be, a Chardonnay. It's going to have those tasting notes underneath it. I can attest to the fact that the folks that work for you are the class act uh, as far as questions, as far as being nice to the customers. I mean, they literally go out of their way. And I've become friends with some of them personally just because of that over the years because they are so nice. And you do a great job of not only training them but hiring the right type of people that are there to really help. One last question before we close out this segment. Uh, What's the oldest bottle of wine that you have at either store right now? 1961 Becheville. Okay. It's a French wine. And that goes for how much? Uh, it's a little over $1,000. <laughs> Is that the most expensive wine that you have? Uh, no, they can get on up there. Now, we had some uh, some other uh, Sauternes that get expensive, too. But for the most part, people aren't buying those expensive wines anymore like they used to. We're trying to sell more moderate price wines now. Great. Um, we'll close out this segment with David right now and come back. I want to talk to you, David, about... Uh, what you've done for the community, because this is an untold story. You go on your website, and there's a couple things on there What what is kind of known to people, but you've done far beyond what your website says. And also talk about the farmer's market down in Pauly's that, that you hold. So we will be right back after these commercials with Will of the People. back as we close out this week's edition of Will of the People. I am joined in studio and it's always nice to have folks stop in and spend time with us uh, for, with David Owens of Owens Liquor. David, thanks again for coming in. It's oh, thank great you to again see for you. Having me, having me, yeah. Billy. So, you know, you have given back to the community through the Boys and Girls Home, Animal Shelters, Community Shelters, and various other charities and causes. And you and I were having a conversation a couple weeks ago. And you know, during COVID, a lot of people kind of checked into their own house and they weren't looking outward. Um, you did a lot for the community that I wanted to make sure that our listeners were aware of. And I just wanted you, if you could spend a couple minutes just talking about that because it that really touched my heart. And to know that you probably weren't the only one doing it, but you were doing it, and you you know you went above and beyond. So. Well, you know, back when COVID hit, that was obviously a bad time. Nobody knew where we were going, where we were headed, and what was going to happen. So at the end of the day, I tried to look around at the community and see what was going on. And you're right, people were in their homes, but also they lost their jobs. Yeah. There was no jobs around. You know, people, a lot of people in Georgetown, and it was really rough, and it was bad. And so I kind of thought, what could I do for the community? So I got me a food truck, and I had them to come by, and I said, let's try to feed some people. You know, see if we can get them to come by. So we put the word out on Facebook and and talked to a bunch of people about it. And we had people that would come and drop food off and put it in their lobby. And it was all canned food. So people could actually come in and pick that canned food up and take it back home with them when they were shopping. If they 
if they desired. And, but a lot of people were so, so giving to help us out with that. But we got a food truck there, and uh, we started feeding people. And I noticed the people were coming out of the woodwork. So we ended up having two food trucks there on site every day. And they were there to feed the people, and that's what we did. And I paid for every bit of that because I wanted to make sure these people got fed because we didn't know where we were going and what was going to happen. And I'm trying to look at my community and see. I've, they supported me right. when I first opened up. And they did so much for us that I had to do something to give back. So we fed people for as many months as we could. It was like four or five months. We just continuously had these trucks there. And I continuously, every meal that went out the door, I pulled money out of my pocket and we paid for it because there was people starving. There was people that just, they were out of work, you yeah. know, and they, they, some of them would, they would, they would get together and get in groups of cars and come because they didn't have but one car because they couldn't afford the gas to get to us. I saw that personally. Yes. I, I, I remember that. We were here. We were living here at, at the time and uh, trying to determine whether we were going to go back and forth to PA or stay down here. And, and I remember going over to your store and seeing that and coming home and saying that to my wife and said, I, there's something going on here that is truly, truly miraculous that you know the outreach to the community and it, again, it, it's a, uh, it says something about you as a person. Which well, I, I try to give back, you know, in a lot of different ways. And I started with the, the kids. I always say, oh, you know, we need to take care of our kids coming up because, yeah. you know, you have a lot of broken families. It's just, you have to admit that. You know, there's not, there's not a mother and father in the house all the time. There's sometimes just the mother or just the father. So I wanted to give back to that, that part of it to try to help those people get the education they needed or, you know, just to get some kind of, fixture in their life so they would have something to fall back on and that's something i think if, if more people would do and try to help the community out with through the kids right you know bringing them up because i mean look at it today i mean it's, it's just, just confused and i'd like to see more people get involved because i think if we all got together and pulled together we could get them out of the situation that they're in oh, it's absolutely. just going to take people it's going to take people that's got the heart to get in here and let's make it work but we got to pull it together well, I, I think I think a lot of people want to take that step, but they don't know how to take that step, or they haven't taken the step before, and said, you know, what? I want to get involved, and they they in their mind they sit there and they go, oh well, I want to get involved with people that I like, or you know, that no, folks, you you need to find a way, you need to have a purpose and give back to the community because without our community, we have nothing. You know, we talk about faith, family friendship and fidelity on this show being the tenants and without those four we're lost and you know you, you stepped up david during that time period and you still step up i mean i, I want to spend a minute maybe a couple if we have them left and talk about what you're doing with the farmers market down in Pauly's because it is it, it's an unbelievable uh way to spend a saturday stop in and be exposed to businesses that you typically may not even know that exist well, it kind of stemmed from the food trucks. We had more food trucks, and so we wanted to have them and do something a little bit different. So we started the farmer's market, and we do it twice a month on a Saturday, first and last Saturday of the month. And it's a beautiful thing because the people that come out there are local people. Some of them are older people that make stuff at home. They'll make necklaces, bracelets. They'll cook cakes and pies and come out and sell them right there on the property at the farmer's market. we got a great produce guy, I saw King's Produce. This guy's phenomenal. He's got some of the best produce I've seen yet. Where's he based out of? Uh, he's based out of, he's got his place in Surfside. Okay. I think he can, some stuff comes out of Georgetown. But he's a great guy. I mean, his, all his, I got some speckled butter beans the other day, and they were awesome. But, I mean, people coming down, he's always busy. He's got all kind of people coming around him. Uh, but we really do thrive on this farmer's market. We want to bring something else to the community. So we're bringing all these people in to show their wares of what they got. 
And it's fun because some of these people, this is their extra income. This is the money, the extra that they can make just so they can survive through all this. Because a lot of them, you know, today in time, today, these times, you can't get what you need, you know, with the money that you get from Social Security, whatever it may be. So these people are getting this little bit of extra money. It makes a big difference for them. You've got some organic growers, too. That yes. participate in that. I, I, if you could spend a minute on that, because that's that's important. More and more people are becoming aware that uh, the food that we eat has no nutrition in it. And I've talked to some of the farmers that you have there on Saturday, and they go through. Since I was involved in the, the water business and ag business for part of my career, uh, they go through the the painstaking time and effort to do things in a manner that are beneficial to us. I was wondering if you could spend a minute and, and talk about that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the, the stuff that they're putting in the produce today and the, the preservatives they're using and the pesticides that they use, it's obviously not good for our bodies. And these guys are really getting into it and they're thinking about this stuff when they're putting it all together and they're trying to go organic as much as they can. Even the ladies are cooking the pies and, yeah. and everything out there. I mean, it's just it's fun and, and good to be able to watch them because we don't know what we're putting in our bodies but these guys started realizing that and that's why they went more organic with their fruits and vegetables that they're growing and the people the people that are selling at the farmer's market i mean it's a range of ages there's folks oh, there yes. in their 20s there's folks there in their 70s yes and and it's it's great to bring your family through and experience that type of of you know community get together and then stop in and, and have a beer because you've got one of the best beer selections. <laughs> yep, and we, we do. You know, back in the you know, three or four years ago, you know, we had that beer craze where all the, these little breweries were popping up. Yep. And we were trying to get new beers, and the new beers were awesome. And uh, we, we did a lot of collaborations. We even had a, took a bourbon barrel and sent it off to one of the beer companies breweries and they actually put their beer in that, that barrel of whiskey that I bought and they made that particular beer and it was incredible and people raved about that so we're trying to do innovative things with all these different places and what they're doing and like you know we do a lot of barrels of whiskey you know I, I sample whiskeys all the time so sure. I've got new barrels of whiskeys coming in um, I got another tequila we're doing on Tuesday so we're going to be bringing in one uh, this, all these celebrities are now getting into the business. Right. Do you have that on the website that people can take a look and know when, when the tastings are and there's yeah. a calendar? Great. Yeah, you can go to the website and it tells you when we're having our tastings. The tastings are great. The biggest thing right now is the canned cocktail craze. Right. That is phenomenal. I mean, it is just going crazy. And they're actually good. They are. They really are. I mean, I started drinking the high noons, but there's other ones out there. Kettle One makes a real good one. Tangeray makes a gin and tonic. I mean, there's some awesome canned drinks out there, and they are a phenomenon. These kids don't want to mix drinks. They're going to these canned cocktails. The oh, canned yeah. cocktails is the new thing for right now. And it's, it's been a craze for the summer. It's it, one of the hottest things I've seen ramp up in the market since the bourbon started ramping up. Another evolution in the beverage business. Yes. I mean, if you can, there's beverages out there that you can lose weight, and, and now you can have a pre-made cocktail in a can yes. all ready to go. <laughs> Everybody's getting into it. I saw this morning on uh, TV that Dunkin' Donuts was uh, actually getting into the scene also with some of their canned drinks and their coffees. I'm not surprised. Well, David, listen, it's been a pleasure to have you in studio. Please, folks, if you haven't been to Owens Liquors, uh, there's a location in Central uh, Myrtle Beach, also one in Pauly's Island. David's one of the best people you could ever meet. And, David, thanks again for coming in. Folks, that'll be a wrap for Will the People. Please go out, enjoy the weekend, be civil to folks out there, go to church on Sunday, and we'll see you next week.